The views and opinions expressed in this episode are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Gwen and Mercy Academy High School, the Sisters of Mercy, or any related affiliate. Welcome back to the Monarch Impact. I'm Megan Conahan, a junior. And I'm Erin Remold, the Director of Alumni Engagement and a member of the class of 2012. Today, we're excited to welcome Dr. Mara McLaughlin to the podcast. She graduated from Gwinnett in 1990 and went on to attend Penn State University. There, she received her Bachelor of Science degree in Astronomy and Astrophysics. In 2001, she received her doctorate in Astronomy and Space Sciences from Cornell University. Dr. McLaughlin is currently an Eberly Distinguished Professor of Physics and Astronomy at West Virginia University. She served as chair and co-director of the NanoGrav Physics Frontiers Center and aims with this research to use neutron stars to detect gravitational waves through timing an array of ultra-precise millisecond pulsars. Dr. McLaughlin is also a principal investigator on an NSF Pyre Award for the International Timing Array for Gravitational Wave Detection. She has been awarded the Alfred P. Sloan Fellowship, the Research Corporation Cottrell Scholar Award, Names a fellow of the American Physical Society for outstanding work in the physical sciences and received Gwyneth Trocaire Leadership Award for her work in the field of science in 2019. This year, she delivered the commencement address at the class of 2022's graduation ceremony. Welcome, Dr. McLaughlin. So welcome to the podcast, Mara. It's good to have you here. Just to start out, we wanted we were wondering why you chose Gwinnett for high school. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for inviting me. Um, it's really great to talk to you. Yeah, so I went to Catholic school um, for grade school. I'm from Orland, and I went to Holy Martyrs grade school. And I was looking at both the Mount and Gwinnett for high school. My mother went to the Mount, so there was a little bit of pressure on me to go there. So I applied to both. Um, And I was really into music at the time. You know, I I still play the oboe, but I played the clarinet and the oboe and I really wanted to go somewhere with a good music program. And so like academically, they were both good, Um, but I got a music scholarship to Gwynedd for playing the oboe and they had a, you know, a a much better like orchestra and music program. So that was actually what did it for me. Um, it was a little contentious though, because my mom really loved the Mount and would have really liked me to go there. But I was like, oh, the music stuff is is kind of really important to me. So ultimately, that's why I chose Gwinnett. Yeah, that's awesome, and that's so cool that um, you were able to find your like music, and that was a really I don't know. It's really important to have what you like in the school that you go to. Yeah, it was great, and my mother kind of made me feel, I think, because she went to the Mount that like. When it might be better musically, but it wouldn't be as good academically, you know, like I'd be giving something up. But in the end, when it was great, I felt like it was really challenging academically. It definitely prepared me um, for college and for life. And in the music program was also really, really good. So I felt like it had everything that I, I needed in the end. Yeah. What was your favorite subject while you were here? And is that still kind of a big part of your life today? Yeah, what an interesting question. I think, well, it's funny, actually, I feel like in high school, even though I'm an astronomer now, and I, I really did like science. Um, when I was in high school, I don't think those were my favorite subjects. Like I liked them, 
Um, I really, this is going to sound so dorky and so weird. And I'm probably the only person who will ever say this, but I loved Latin. Like I just really liked learning Latin. And I think there's something about, you know, it's like very mathematical, right? There's lots of like very kind of precise rules in Latin. And I think that really appealed to me, like that kind of like kind of rule-based language type thing. And I just got such a thrill out of like reading old Latin texts and translating them and seeing like how accurately and quickly um, I could do it. I, I just, I, I really enjoyed Latin. I, so I, I think that was probably my, my favorite subject, honestly. I don't remember any of it now. <laughs> I like Latin too. And there's a lot of Latin in space and yeah, stars. It is, and like yeah. That. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I think that's part of why I liked it. Like once you start studying it, you see all the connection, everything, right? So like lots of um, sciencey names. Um, and classification type stuff all come from Latin and obviously English and other languages. So I just really liked that. It was really eye-opening. Yeah, that's really cool. Were there any teachers that you felt like influenced your career path or what you were interested in? I mean, all of them, obviously, you know, like all the teachers I had were were really, really great. Um, A couple of them that stand out, um, Sister Maureen Christie was, you know, our English teacher. And um, even though I didn't end up like going into English or liberal arts, I am really grateful to her because I feel like she really taught me to be a good writer. And I think a lot of students who go into like the sciences um, are not very good writers. Like they haven't like prioritized, you know, writing. And I, I'm, I'm very grateful that I had Sister Maureen Christie because I feel like she really made me a good writer and it's really helpful for a career in the sciences to also be able to express yourself and like write with proper grammar and structure and like all the things I learned still really stick with me. And the other teacher I'd mentioned is Mrs. Conaway, who I think just retired like a little bit ago. Um, yeah, about two years yeah, ago. Yeah, but I had her um, for science. Um, I had her for my first business class. And that was obviously really instrumental because that's what I ended up kind of going into. So she was a she was a great teacher, um, really supportive, like of my interest in, in science. Um, and I don't know that I'd be doing science if it wasn't for her as a high school teacher. And there's, there's countless others, you know, but I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. They all really have an impact on what you learn, especially like English. You don't think about how important your writing skills are, regardless of what career you go into. It's, it's a big foundation that you exactly. need. Exactly. Yeah, I feel like they prepare you really yeah. well here. Yeah, and I, I think that's what, exactly why I'm mentioning it, because I kind of didn't realize it at the time. You know, I thought like, oh, if I go into science, like who cares about like writing? <laughs> but it's it's really super important. And um, paying close attention to your English class will help you succeed in well, almost any field you go into, I think. But it's really important in science. You, know, you need to write papers. And there's no point doing science well if you can't like write papers about it. Um, you need to write funding proposals to get funding. You know, it's really, really important. Yeah. So you played the oboe. What other clubs were you involved in or was it mainly music here? Yeah. So I did lots of music stuff, um, you know, playing the oboe in the orchestra. And I was in all the school plays, um, you know, singing in the school plays and in the choir. So I did all that stuff. I wasn't really sporty. Um, I didn't do any sports teams. Actually, I think I played on the tennis team, like, you know, barely ever played a game in my first year. Yeah, but I did did a bunch of other things. Like, I think I was on the newspaper. And I think I was, 
you know, a part of the team. I don't remember exactly what my role was, but I remember writing articles for the newspaper and editing the newspaper. You know, being so involved at Gwynedd and then kind of going on to be so successful, what did it mean for you to be asked to come back and speak at commencement and, uh, you know, kind of give your your two cents um, and advice to the class of 2022? Yeah, I mean, it was really an honor and I was kind of surprised at first, right? Like I never really thought about giving a commencement speech before being asked. And, um, you know, I was kind of like, why did they ask me? Like, where, where did this come from? It was seemed, you know, it was very surprising. Um, but it was a huge honor. I almost said no. Like I was almost like, what do I have to say? You know, I don't, I don't really know what I would say. I had never thought about it, but then I thought, you know, this is really like a unique opportunity to be able to kind of share my perspective and maybe think about like, you know, what I would have needed to hear at that age. And I really shouldn't pass it up. Um, and I like talking to people. Like, it's really nice just to be able to connect with people, especially with COVID going on, you know, for so long, I sort of thought it'll be really nice just to get back there and get to meet people and see the current students and the school and all that. Um, so yeah, it was, it was really fun in the end. It was just so special. It's funny, graduation hasn't changed at all. <laughs> you know, like the, the ceremony and the kind of structure, the girls are different, like the dresses are different, and, but, but really it hasn't changed much at all. And so it was just really cool to kind of relive that a little bit. It really kind of like, you know, took me back and it was, it was quite emotional actually, like just kind of remembering my own graduation and then just seeing all the students like going out into the world. It was, it was really, really special and really nice. Absolutely. It's funny. Um, so the last two years we had graduation outside due to COVID and this is the first time in a couple of years we've been inside. So actually Mrs. Conaway came back to show the girls exactly, exactly how to do the indoor graduation because everybody had kind of, you know, needed a refresher. So she, she came back to make sure that they had their mercy curtsy correct and, and the whole, the whole nine yards that I feel like all of us really had nailed into yeah. us. I'm sure she's an expert. <laughs> She must have, she, I mean, she must have been through, I don't know, 30 years or probably more, maybe even 40 years of graduations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so what, when you, you know, Gwen had kind of, as you mentioned, prepared you, especially in terms of academics, writing, um, and, you know, got you interested in the sciences. Um, and then you went to college. What was that transition like? Was it hard moving from such a small school to such a big school like Penn State? Um, what was, what was that transition like? Yeah, I wouldn't say it was hard. Like I felt prepared by Gwynedd, like academically, but it was weird um, because I went from being in an all girls, you know, environment um, and not feeling at all like, I don't know, underrepresented, right? And the things that I liked, like I really liked physics and math and it didn't seem weird when I was at Gwynedd because everyone was a girl, obviously. Um, and I kind of knew that women were underrepresented in physics. Like I kind of knew that you know, I knew the statistics, but it was really weird going to Penn State and walking into my first physics class and being one of two girls, I think, out of like 40 people, you know, that was really weird um, and just so different from Gwynedd, obviously. Um, I wouldn't say that it was hard, like it was okay. Um, I think that I did really miss, though, that kind of sense of camaraderie 
um, like I wasn't used, used to working with boys, you know, or like forming peer groups with, with boys and study groups with boys. So I did feel a little left out. Like I think most of the um, male students kind of worked together in groups on homeworks and got together. And I was just very isolated um, and just kind of did my own thing. And it, it was fine. Like, a, you know, I did fine. It was fine. Um, but it was a little, it was a little weird just not having that kind of community, you know, and, be, and feeling like such a, such a minority. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, going from being all girls to two girls is quite a shock. Did you feel like Gwen had kind of helped you, you know, establish any kind of confidence, like being in that environment, like knowing you, you know, weren't any less than, or like, how did you kind of approach being in a class of, you know, your peers when you were the one of the only women? Yeah, that's such a good question. Because I thought sometimes about um, what my trajectory would have looked like if I went to a co-ed high school. In the one sense, like I kind of would have been used to being in that environment um, and moving into college wouldn't have been so weird. But I actually don't know if I would have stuck with it through high school if I'd been in a co-ed environment. So I feel like Gwena definitely gave me the confidence um, to really own kind of what I liked, even if it might be like nerdy or not cool without worrying about what boys thought. And so by the time I got to college, I feel like I really kind of, kind of owned that. Um, and I had the confidence to persist. Whereas, you know, so I think overall being at an all girls school was really good. Um, even though it kind of, it was a little bit more of a culture shock, I think, than if I'd been at a, a co-ed school, but I don't know what it stuck with physics if I'd been at a co-ed school. Um, I think I might've felt intimidated, you know, and uh, I didn't feel that it went at all. Yeah. Did you always know you wanted to study physics or was that something you kind of discovered at Gwynedd? Like when did, when did it start? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah. I, I didn't always know for sure. I mean, when I was um, a kid, sort of like, you know, pre high school, I had tons of different interests, you know, like I remember I really liked animals. I thought maybe I'll be a vet. I really liked music. I thought maybe I'll do that. Um, I had so many different interests. And then at Gwynedd, yeah, I just really, you know, I liked my math classes at Gwynedd. Um, math's kind of boring by itself, for me at least. Like, you know, I really enjoyed math, but I was thinking, what can I apply math to? And then I remember taking physics and realizing, well, there's lots of math in this. Um, but I didn't really like physics itself so much either. You know, it was really astronomy. So I started reading a lot of just astronomy books in high school and just got really excited about like, you know, black holes and gravitational waves and neutron stars and all these kind of really cool exotic like astronomy topics. Um, and I think I realized that these classes that I, I liked um, and did well at at Gwynedd could be applied to astronomy, which was like really super cool. So sort of a combination. We didn't have an astronomy class then. Do you guys have an astronomy class now? We don't have an astronomy class, but we do have a astronomy club. So there's a little something, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. We didn't even have that. So like I had no astronomy kind of um, knowledge imparted at Gwynedd, but it was sort of like that core foundation coupled with a lot, reading a lot of science fiction. And then even when I went to college, I applied to do astronomy and astrophysics, um, like in my applications, but I still wasn't like a hundred percent set when I went to college. I kind of had in the back of my mind, eh, like, you know, I'll apply for this. And then when I get there, I'll kind of figure it out. Um, but once I got to college and actually had the opportunity to do research, 
um, like actual astronomy research and go to a big telescope and use it, that kind of like solidified it for me. You do a lot of research with space, which is basically infinite. Um, Do you find that overwhelming, just how endless the possibilities of research are, or does that kind of excite you? Yeah, that's not a, that's a good question. And it's very well worded. It's a hard one. I mean, so most of my day to day, I'm not sitting here like thinking lofty thoughts about the endlessness of space. You know, I have data on my computer that I need to analyze. I have students who are writing papers and doing projects. So actually most of the time I I lose sight often of like the super big picture of sort of the endlessness of space and how amazing it is and all this, like in the day to day, I'm just trying to get stuff done, (laughs) you know, so trying to like write funding proposals, write papers, mentor students, teach classes and all of that. Um, When I step back and think about it, I've gone through phases in my life where either it's like really depressed me or really inspired me. So I think when you think about the vastness of space and how small we are, you know, it can, it can do two things, right? It can make you feel depressed and like kind of insignificant, you know, like, oh my God, like, what am, what am I even doing? Like stressing out over like writing this paper where like, you know, there's um, hundreds of billions of planets and, you know, so many galaxies and stars and what does it matter? Um, or it can make me feel just super like all inspired. And that's how I feel more, <laughs> you know, I more feel just com- really inspired. Um by the fact that, you know, we're able to know what we know about galaxies that are, you know, billions of light years away and stars in our galaxy that are thousands of light years away. And we have so much knowledge about it. Um, And, you know, I feel usually just very fortunate to be in a place where like we have the tools to be able to probe these almost like unknowable things um, using scientific tools and really powerful instruments. And I also realized that what we know now is like a tiny, tiny iota of what we could know. You know, there's just so much out there to know. And I find that really motivating. Like astronomy is a field which we're never going to get to a point where we're like, okay, we just know it all now. Like never, right? There's just like so much out there that we don't understand. There's so many big questions. Yeah, that's really cool that you never really reach a stopping point in what you've learned about space. Like you can just keep going and you can always just continually learn. Like I know I'm someone who really enjoys learning and I want to go into a career where you can learn a lot and not really reach the like end point where there's nothing left to learn. So I think that's really cool how you can just always find new things. Yeah. I mean, I guess a lot of careers are like that. Um, And a lot of sciences are like that. I feel like astronomy more than many though, (laughs) like, cause there's some like really fundamental things. Like we totally don't understand, like even what the universe is made of, like really basic things, how the universe is going to die. You know, super basic things that we have really no idea about. We have theories, you know, but we really have no idea about Um, the stars I study. We don't even know like what they're made of, right. Because we can't probe them. So it's a very different kind of science than say like, biology or chemistry, there's still lots of unknowable things about those sciences too. But the idea that, you know, the the objects we study, we can't actually touch or um, do direct experiments on is really, I don't know, kind of, kind of appealing. And it's just impossible to ever know everything there is to know. There's so much, as you mentioned, to study about 
you know, astronomy um, and astrophysics and everything. Like, what is it specifically that you focus on? Um, and like, how would you explain that to someone who knows nothing about the topic? Yeah, so I study a special type of star um, called a neutron star. And so neutron stars are formed when normal stars like the sun, um, but a little bit bigger than the sun, explode in a supernova when they reach the end of their lives, right? So when a star runs out of fuel to support itself against the collapse of gravity, it falls in on itself, there's a huge explosion, and the core of that star is left behind. Um, and after this explosion, the core contracts in on itself. Um, so it becomes really, really, really small. Um, so these neutron stars are the leftovers after these supernova explosions. Um, they're about uh, 10 kilometers in radius. Um, so tiny, 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 like the size of like a, a city, you know, um, but they weigh more than the sun, about one and a half times the sun. So they're basically like giant atomic nuclei in space. Like they're as dense as an atomic nucleus. Um, and the reason they're so cool is because they're very, very compact. Um, they have huge gravitational fields. So I like to use them as um, like fundamental physics kind of tools, right? So like the star itself is interesting, um, but you can do things like test general relativity um, because they're in binary systems with other stars. They're whizzing super fast around and because they have such high gravitational fields, we see all these really neat effects um, predicted by general relativity, but that we just like, can't see here on earth or in laboratories. Um, they also act like clocks. So they rotate very rapidly. Um, some of them up to almost a thousand times a second. They have millisecond periods, which is crazy, right? So you've got this huge ball. Um, it weighs more than the sun. It's like 20 kilometers across and it's rotating, you know, almost a thousand times a second, which is insane. Um, but they produce radio emission like lighthouses. So they have a north and south like magnetic pole, just like the earth and radio photons are produced along the, these open magnetic field lines. Um, anyway, so as they rotate, we see a blip, a radio blip with every rotation. So they're like clocks in space. So what I do specifically with these stars is I use radio telescopes. Um, I point at one of these pulsars and I measure its clock. So I measure um, the period, right? So the spacing between these pulses. And the really cool thing about this is um, we can model the arrival times of these pulses and we can fit for things like, you know, obviously the period of the pulsar, but we can also fit for its velocity in space. Um, if it's in a binary orbit, we can characterize that motion. And we can even look for tiny little deviations like due to gas in between us and the pulsar. So we can probe our galaxy, like the gas in the galaxy. And my main project right now is searching for gravitational waves. Um, so gravitational waves are ripples in space-time predicted by Einstein and his theory of general relativity. And basically these gravitational waves like stretch and squeeze space-time. So if a gravitational wave passes between us and one of these pulsars, it'll like stretch and squeeze the space time between us. And we'll see the pulses arriving like a little bit late and a little bit earlier um, in this point, kind of like periodic fashion due to a gravitational wave. Um, and this sounds crazy, but it's actually, we think measurable. Um, we would see like tiny little perturbations in the arrival times of the pulses due to these waves. And so this is the experiment that I've been doing for um, something like, gosh, 
16 years now, ever since I arrived here um, at WVU. Um, and we think we're very close actually to making a detection of these waves now. Um, and it's been sort of, you know, it's a very long timescale project. So for like, you know, 16 years, we've been slowly building up this signal in our data. So we observe 80 of these pulsars with large radio telescopes and just like slowly build up this data set where we're looking for these very long timescale perturbations in the data due to these waves. And we think we're very close to detecting them, which is really exciting. Um, and the waves that we're detecting are produced by very massive black holes at the cores of galaxies that are in the process of merging. And so these galaxies are like billions of light years away. They had these billion solar mass, billion times the mass of the sun black holes at their cores that are coming together. And they produce huge amounts of gravitational waves. So we're using these pulsars, which are all in our galaxy, um, to look for these perturbations. But once we detect them, we'll be able to study these really massive black holes at these very distant galactic cores. Um, so we'll learn a lot about like the history of how galaxies have like merged together and grown um, over cosmic time. So there's this like super big picture aspect of the experiment. It's not just about saying like, yeah, we detected these gravitational waves. Um, once we make this detection, it's going to be like a whole new realm of science, which is cool. Like, like I'll be kind of changing fields in a way, because once we make this detection, then we're going to start studying galaxies, um, not just these neutron stars in our galaxy. Um, so it's, it's really exciting. And we're really kind of on the brink, we think, of making this detection, which will be super cool. Wow. Yeah. I feel like my mind is blown. <laughs> I know. <laughs> like you're creating a whole new area of science that is amazing. Um, and, and yeah, very cool to hear about. Yeah, it's really exciting. And you, so you mentioned like, so you're doing this research, but you're also teaching like what, so what is a day-to-day -day kind of schedule for you look like and what are you doing kind of with your time? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, yeah, so as a um, college professor, I typically teach one class each semester. So um, teaching is a important, but um, you know, small-ish part of what I do. You know, so I'll teach one class a semester, typically either an undergraduate um, or a graduate level class. You know, um, and I typically rotate just between two classes, um, an undergrad class and a grad class. And I do them different semesters. And I've done that for a long time. It's getting kind of boring, actually. Like I've taught the same two classes for, for a really long time. Um, so the classes usually meet, you know, twice a week for like an hour and a half. Um, so I spend probably like the equivalent of like two I don't know, half days at this point, sort of preparing the lectures, giving the lecture, probably a little bit more when you add in like keeping track of grades and homeworks and things like that. Um, so probably I spend maybe 20 to 30% of my time on teaching, so something of that order. Um, and then the rest of my time is devoted to a combination of research um, and what I would call like service. Um, so research probably takes up about, I don't know, 50% of my time, something like that, half my time. Um, and that involves mostly mentoring students, honestly. So I have a lot of graduate students who are doing research and I do very little research now that's just me, like on my own. So usually my research time is spent, um, you know, helping students with projects. So, um, I have a bunch of grad students a lot of them right now. I have eight grad students working with me right now, and all of them are doing a different research project. So I spent a lot of time meeting with the students, um, figuring out what's going wrong with the data analysis, um, 
interpreting the data, once we analyze data, writing papers, a lot of it goes into like reading paper drafts, giving them feedback. Um, so that takes up a lot of time. A lot of time is also spent on funding. So, you know, as a um, college professor, I need to apply for grants to be able to fund my grad student salaries, um, to be able to fund my salary, partly to be able to support like travel to conferences and stuff. So um, a lot of time is spent writing proposals for funding. And then once we get funding, reporting on that funding, managing that funding, there's a lot, there's a lot of that that people don't think about, I think, when you think about careers in science, but there's a lot of like financial management and like milestone management and timeline management and that kind of stuff. Um, I also do quite a bit of outreach. So, um, you know, I give a lot of talks like at scientific meetings, but I also do quite a bit of public outreach. Um, so giving talks at say high schools or middle schools, um, things like that. And I manage an outreach program, which involves high school students in looking for pulsars using the Green Bank Telescope here in West Virginia. So I spend a lot of time on that. Um, and that is usually like answering questions online, um, doing like online lectures. We have a camp here. We just had our camp a few weeks ago. We had a bunch of high school students here um, for a, kind of a pulsar camp here for a few days. And we'll do another one of the telescope later in the summer. Um, and then another big component of my job is what I would call like service. Um, so I'm chair of our um, graduate studies and advising committee, for instance. So you know, I spend quite a bit of time advising grad students on like what classes to take, um, what, if they're meeting requirements. Um, we have qualifying exams, um, you know, so when they should take their qual exams, um, what to do if they're not doing well. So lots of this kind of like mentoring and advising in the department. Um, and other committees, you know, like, you know, we just went through our like graduate admissions, um, working on graduate admissions and, um, I'm pretty involved with like diversity and equity and inclusion efforts in the department. So um, working on um, supporting students and recruiting students and just trying to um, improve the diversity of our department and the, how well we support our students and offer support in different ways for students from um, different backgrounds. You know, so I've been putting a lot of effort into that. So day to day, yeah, lots of different things. Um, some days I might spend, yeah, I mean, some days I might spend all day kind of on research focused stuff. Some, some days it might be on outreach focused stuff. Nearly every day, half the day is spent on Zoom because all of the things I do um, involve collaborators at other institutions. All the research I do, at least much of it is with collaborators at other institutions. But I, don't, I spend a lot of time every day on Zoom. <laughs> I think if you looked at my schedule, you know, about half the day would be Zoom meetings. Um, and the other half would be meetings with students here in person. Um, and usually if I want to have time to do like just lots of research, just myself, often that's like early in the morning or in the, the evenings, you know, um, lots of, lots of meetings actually. And I mentioned that because I think that surprised me when I became a scientist, I imagine just like sitting in an ivory tower and never interacting with anybody. And that's not how it is at all. Like there's lots of collaboration and lots of interaction. Yeah. That's really awesome how involved you are with students because Alan, I, I'm not a graduate student yet, obviously, but I can just think how influential that would be to have like a mentor that's that involved and willing to help you with your research projects. Like, I think that would be really helpful in achieving your career goals. Yeah. And I really enjoy working with students. I mean, that was, that's what makes it 
worthwhile. You know, it's really great to see, see students like publish their first paper, um, ultimately get their PhD, uh, and, and then they become my colleague, <laughs> which is really cool. You know, when you have grad students, um, often they stay in the field and they'll move from like being your student to being an actual colleague later on. So the relationship really doesn't end. Did you ever have a, a mentor or somebody like that to look up to as you were kind of getting to where you are in your career? Yeah. So um, I went to um, Penn State as an undergrad and I, I worked with a faculty member there on research. And um, he was, he gave me a lot of opportunities. Um, he wasn't like a close handholder, you know, like he was like, here's this project, do it. Um, but I learned a lot and he had a lot of confidence in me um, and, you know, gave me a ton of opportunities getting to go to telescopes and meetings and, and do different things. Um, in grad school, my advisor was, was very supportive there as well. Um, he was, um, yeah, just a super smart guy with lots of, lots of ideas. Um, I would say that I think like graduate mentorship has evolved a lot from when I was in school towards now, whereas when I was in school, really, it was like research, you know, so you acted as a research mentor, here's the project, um, here's some advice on what to do, we meet, we have questions. I think now there's a lot more expectation that um, we really mentor our students as like whole people, right, and not just like research, right, so I really try to do that with my students um, in a way that I think wasn't an expectation when, when I was in grad school, you know, so how are you doing? <laughs> how are you finding grad school? Um, is it stressful? Do you need more support? How are you adjusting? You know, so I think, um, I try to do that more with my students. Do you feel like, um, so you mentioned like there was only really like two of you, um, or a few of you, um, when you went into undergrad and studying, you know, this type of science, do you find that there are more women entering it. I'm sure it's really nice for them to have a female mentor too. Yeah, there are. Yeah. So I never had a female mentor, um, you know, as an undergrad, um, my advisor and my the faculty member I worked with were men. My graduate advisor was a man. All the kind of senior people in grad school were men, like the kind of postdocs or research staff who worked with my advisor um, as a postdoc at the University of Manchester, my supervisor was a man. You know, so I, I really never had that kind of female mentorship relationship until I was a faculty member, actually. Um, and then I did meet someone who was like a strong kind of senior female mentor once I became a faculty member. And that was that was very, very helpful. Um, but I think students now have it, have it better. Um, there are more kind of senior women in the field now who can mentor um, women coming in. It's still, you know, there's, you know, it's still not even like when I came into um, the field, I would guess probably like 10% of people in physics were women and maybe, maybe like 20% of women in astronomy. Astronomy is always a little better than physics. Um, now I would say we're at maybe 20 to 30% women in physics and maybe 30 to 40 in astronomy. So it's like better, um, but there's still a, a disparity. Um, and it's really department specific. I feel like, um, you know, some departments do a really good job um, with supporting women and recruiting women. And once you have a couple good, you know, female faculty, that really helps, right? It's kind of like a snowball effect. You know, once you have a, a group of women there, then it's easier to recruit more women, right? Because they see that there's like a, a cohort for them. 
I think we're doing pretty good here now. I think our graduate student pop population in astronomy um, is really pretty good. We're at maybe 40% women now, still not, still not 50%, but um, we have a few female faculty and uh, a pretty good cohort of female grad students who I think support each other well. Yeah, it's getting there hopefully eventually. Yeah. <laughs> we're getting there. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's very slow progress, honestly. And it takes a lot of time like for things to trickle up, you know? So like right now we're doing this, you know, lots of high school outreach and we have a ton of high school women who are really interested and excited, you know, but it's going to take 10 or 15 years for them to move through the system, you know, get their degrees, get graduate degrees, move into like permanent positions, like faculty positions, and even longer for them to get to the point where they can really like make an influence, you know? So it just takes time. What, what would you say is one of the biggest challenges that you faced in your career? Yeah, it's a good question. I think um, just management of like life and work. I think that and it's everybody, right? But I mean, I think um, science is hard because, you know, it's kind of things happen at all times, like with astronomy in particular, Um you know, we have observations in the middle of the night. Sometimes um, the work that I do is very kind of um, time. And like, sometimes there are, there are things that happen on very short time scales, like a transient event we'll detect and we need to write something up right away or we're going to get scooped by somebody else. Um, like there's lots of that kind of stuff in my field. Um, and if you are like a single <laughs> man without any family or kids or with like, a wife at home or does everything you get ahead honestly i mean you can you can go in at 3 a.m in the middle of the night and you know spend a whole day following this event up and write something and i have three kids and um it's been hard to like just kind of manage that right like just kind of the amount of time to spend on family and also feel like um so kind of setting healthy boundaries and not you know just being okay with um, sometimes I can't do the same things, right. That, um, other people can do and it's worth it. It's hundred percent worth it. I wouldn't, you know, trade my kids in and say, I'd rather have, you know, more, more, more papers or, you know, glory or anything like that. But, but it's, yeah, it's hard. And I think it's hard in a way that maybe like, I, like my job is definitely not like a nine to five job, right. There's an expectation that, um, sometimes I need to work on the weekend, like things come up. Um, there's benefits to that too, though. Like I have a lot of flexibility. I can also just take the day off and spend time with my kids if I have to. Um, right. Like there's, my job is very, very flexible. Um, so yeah, just that, that management part of it, that time management, I, I think that's the most difficult part for me. Um, and just, yeah, just, just setting my own priorities and being okay with them, you know? Yeah. That must be so weird. I didn't think about how the things that you study, you can't just like pause them and come back to study them later. Like they're happening, whether you're ready or not. And that's really different from, like you said, a nine to five job where, you know, if you're looking up something, you can always take a break and come back to it, but you know, you can't just stop stars rotating or like exploding or any of that. Like it's, it's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Like I like going to bed early and getting up early. And there've been times I've gone to bed at, you know, 10 PM and gotten up the next morning and there will be 50 emails already about something 
that's been detected. And I'm like, oh, well, I guess I missed that boat. <laughs> you know, um, like that kind of thing happens quite often, actually. Um, and it can be hard, you know, especially, you know, for I, th- I think women, you know, who, who have maybe more caregiving responsibilities. Um, it just makes it, you know, it's, it's harder to stay afloat. It's also in particular hard. Um, you know, I have a friend who is a single mom to two kids and our, our um, field also like, you know, getting ahead is um, really depends a lot on being able to like go to meetings and give talks. And, you know, that's really hard, you know, for some women as well to actually be able to travel and do that. COVID's actually made it a lot better though. Um, now that we've like moved towards Zoom for a lot of things, I actually think much more equitable for women um, who maybe can't travel as easily. So I think, you know, people like my friend have really benefited and hopefully we'll continue to benefit now that we know that we can do things on Zoom more easily. Um, there'll be a lot more like hybrid meetings and talk invitations and stuff. So I think that's that's good. It's one good benefit of COVID actually. What's your like proudest accomplishment of like something you found in research or something you've just done in your career that you're just really proud of? Well, I, I guess a couple things like the... This is, this is many little accomplishments, but the time when I feel like the happiest and most accomplished is when I see one of my students um, graduate so that those moments at graduation, um, when a graduate student of mine, you know, gets their PhD and moves into, you know, a, a real job in the field, that's incredibly meaningful and just makes me so proud because you know, every student has had a very complicated history with lots of problems along the way, lots of trials, um, personal and academic. And, and it's just, just seeing that I've been able to help someone to kind of like get through to the finish line. Um, this really, really makes me proud every time. I mean, I think that's, that's something that I'm just super proud of. I think the other thing I'm most proud of is probably this outreach program that, um, we have um, because we've put a lot of work into kind of building it up and making it work and seeing like high school students come here and be able to do real research and um, just get so excited about what they're doing and, and the students that, you know, sometimes it really has an impact on these students, you know, like they've never even thought about doing science. And then by the end of this workshop, they're like, I want a PhD in astronomy and just being able to have that impact. Um, really, really makes me proud. And there've been lots of other like small things, you know, like awards I've won or papers I've, I've published, but I don't know. Um, those things kind of like come and go and they're kind of nice for a day. <laughs> but when I look back on my career, I think it'll be like the, you know, the people really um, that I've impacted that really makes me the proudest. Yeah. It's really cool. The like amount of lives that you've touched and people that you've kind of helped reach where you once were and like you're, you were in their shoes and now you're helping them get to where they want to go. Yeah. And I'm not unique in that. I mean, I think, you know, all teachers like high school teachers impact even more people. I think they come across like many more people in their, their day-to-day life. And, and uh, so I think, I don't know, I don't, I'm not saying I'm unique in in the number of, of people I've touched or whatever, but I think for me, you know, that's just, that's the most meaningful thing. Yeah. What's your favorite part of your job? Is it getting to interact with the students and help them or is it the research or is it something else that you do? Yeah. Um, 
I think the, you know, I probably my favorite moments at work, you know, I love interacting with the students. Um, but I think if I had to nail down like the time at work when I am like most happy and most excited, probably is when I'm actually doing research and I've stumbled upon something new. Um, you just really can't I mean, that feeling is just such an amazing feeling, you know, so analyzing, say, a data set that I take in with a radio telescope um, and looking at that data and realizing like, wow, there's something in here that I've never seen before, right? Like some completely new phenomenon, this pulsar is doing something we've never seen, or we've measured this property of a pulsar that's different from every other one we've ever measured. Um, that's like the coolest moment. And sometimes it's not even um, discovering something. It's like not understanding something. I really love not understanding things. Like, so I love it when there's like something in the data that we just completely don't understand. And I just love that process of like digging into it and trying to figure it out. Right. So like, this doesn't make any sense. Um, let's look at this. Let's look at that. So that like process of investigation, I think is what I love most about my job. And, and it's not even always the final answer that I love the most or the paper that we write. It's like that moment of like mystery of like just trying to figure out what's going on you know and I, I just really like that yeah I feel like you'd be really good in like an escape room yeah <laughs> <laughs> like being able to figure out what's going on I'm not good in that way <laughs> you've been to escape rooms there yeah we, we went to one with my um I took my son and his friends to one um a couple years ago so much fun it was funny though I went with like me and another faculty member in science who are both moms and, and our kids and like, yeah, we both were like doing the room and we kept having to stop ourselves. We're like, stop, we need to let the kids do the room. <laughs> like we were having so much fun. Um, so I know a big theme of your commencement speech here was um, kind of getting, gathering advice from your fellow classmates um, of what you, you know would, would give your younger selves or what you wished you'd known. Um, can you give us a little bit of like, what's your number one favorite piece of advice that you kind of either gathered from your other classmates or that you would personally want to give to a Gwena girl? Yeah. I mean, I think I said this in my speech and I think it might've been the, one of the first pieces of advice, um, which is sort of, I guess I just phrase it as like failing, failing sometimes is a really good thing. Um, and I think this is the number one thing I needed to hear when I was 18. Like I was terrified of failing, of like not being good at things. Um, if I got, you know, a B on one test, I would be like catastrophic. Like, oh, I'm not meant to do math. I got this B, like, oh, life is over, you know. Um, or if even or even like little failures, like just making a fool of yourself, right? Like getting up and seeing me at a party and people laughing, like all of it seemed so huge when I was 18, right? You know, like life is over. I made a fool of myself this one time or like I ran in a 5K and I was slower than all my friends or I got to be on this test and everything just seems so big. Um, and in, in the end, you know, when I look back at my life, the times that I've tried to do things and didn't do them perfectly, and maybe made a fool of myself are like the best memories, you know? So, you know, the time I tried to do a triathlon and like did it with my friend and almost drowned because I can barely swim. Like, that was so fun now. Like I look back, I'm like, man, I'm really glad I did that. Like, you know, that was like an awesome memory or the classes I took that were a little outside of my comfort zone and maybe didn't do as well as, um, 
classes I could have taken that I knew I had 100% of the preparation for. I learned so much more. You know, so this concept, I think I would just tell tell people that, like, look for opportunities to do things that you're not perfect at. Um, and it's okay to fail. I mean, don't fail at everything, <laughs> you know, but like, it's, it's great to fail. Like, you'll learn so much more from that. Um, and also just have perspective. Like, I know so many people have mental health challenges that are like, you know, we all, we all did as teenagers. It's really hard being a high school student and a teenager. And then I think things are just so exacerbated by COVID, you know, people feeling lonely and unsupported and just feeling, I think it's really hard sometimes to get a sense of like perspective, you know? And so I think this advice, you know, it, it works on a small scale, but also on a really big scale. Like, you know, I mean, I think lots of students are suffering from depression and, you know, just perspective, just like, just this idea that things will get better, that even though your problems might seem like huge and insurmountable, you know, on this scale of things, and when you get to be my age, they'll, they'll seem small, I promise, <laughs> you know, that's what I would like to tell my 18 year old self, um, that even, even these things which seem huge at the time, um, in the end, you know, they'll make you stronger and they're, they're really not, you know, and it's, it's so hard to see that when you're 18, but. Yeah, failing and like going out of your comfort zone is definitely a huge growth factor. And like, that's how I found a lot of things that I now really enjoy that I would have never tried if I was staying in my little like safety bubble of what is safe and known and I'm perfect at, but that's not how life works. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic that you already have that perspective that'll carry you far. It will go on and help me build it um, because they really influence you to like reach out and they're always like try new things yeah it's a safe space to fail in <laughs> um yeah but I was wondering if looking back on your career from you know in high school college now what you work in is there anything that you either regret doing or that you regret not doing like anything that you would change what a good question yeah so I guess one like kind of very practical thing which comes to mind is that there are many skills that I've needed in my job as a scientist that I did not think were important when I was younger. Um, mostly they fall into sort of like the kind of like organizational aspects of my job. So um, I spend a lot of time like managing time and, and money, you know, so deciding like I need to get this done by July 21st, what's the plan? or I have to manage this budget. So like really just basic life skills, <laughs> you know, like time management, money management, um, people management, like how to work with students and advise students um, and kind of have the right balance of being sympathetic, but pushing students to achieve things. I would have spent a lot more time kind of like developing those, um, you know, kind of soft skills as a college student and not just studying, studying, studying. So I would have done things that would have really helped me improve those kinds of skills. And maybe that would have been like um, taking more leadership positions in clubs or even taking like classes on, you know, kind of like how to actually teach or um, kind of mentorship training, things like that, you know, because I think I've learned all that as I've gone along, but it's taken a really long time. And I think like developing those skills early on would be really, really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's weird. Like recently, um, I mean, 
like talking to my parents and things that those weren't things that were taught in schools, but now it's, they're starting to get integrated. Like we have financial literacy in our seminars. So we learn about money and I like, I have no idea what to do with money. So (laughs) that's really important to learn. Yeah. So there's definitely a shift. And like, I was doing an externship and she was talking to us about, cause she has a private practice. She was telling us about taxes and how they deal with those and then like how they fund the practice and how they deal with insurance. And those are things that you don't think about until you're in the moment. And I've definitely noticed a lot of people are saying that these are skills we need to develop now. And it's really great that now we're getting the help in, in my generation. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've wasted, I know I think I said this in my speech, like I've wasted so much time, like just looking for car keys in my life, you know, like, like ridiculous, like silly little things like that. Um, but I think when I was younger, I kind of felt like I'm a scientist. I don't need to like worry about life skills, you know, but it would have been really helpful (laughs) to put time into just like developing more basic life skills. Yeah. So what advice would you give someone who's looking to go into your field? of astronomy, space sciences, physics? Yeah, um, good question. So some of my advice is obvious. I mean, you need to have a really good background in math. Um, You need to have a really good background in computer science, which is something that's often overlooked. Often we have students apply here who have never done any programming or computing and everything we do, you know, obviously is computing reliant, right? So we do a lot of stuff using machine learning. There's lots of data science themes. So like math, computer science, um, don't pass up any opportunities to take math or computer science classes. Um, It's really important to be a good writer and have good communication skills, like take any opportunity to give talks. Um, Really try to become a good communicator because you really can't get anywhere unless you can communicate your science. Um, Educate yourself about like diversity in science um, and DEI related issues. Um, I think it's really our responsibility as scientists to try to like be inclusive and kind of broaden the field as much as possible. Um, And just don't give up. Like it's hard being, well, I mean, all majors are hard. College is hard in general, you know, Um, but it's sometimes it can be hard to just persist, right? There's, you know, to become a, get a physics degree, it's hard. There's lots of requirements. Lots of the classes are difficult. Um, and I, I would just say, yeah, don't give up. And also don't feel like, um, pigeonholed. Like a lot of people are not sure what they want to do. They like science, but they're like, I don't know whether to get a science degree. Cause I don't know whether I want to be like a university professor. And I would say, don't let that stop you. Um, lots of students get degrees in physics and go on to med school or law school. Um, and it's, if you, if you enjoy it as an undergrad, it's still a really valuable degree to have. You'll learn how to think critically. You'll, you'll learn a lot of logic skills. And even if you don't apply those in like science as a, as a scientist, I think the skills you learn studying science are really, really translatable to lots and lots of other fields. Um, so I would say don't, don't think too much about the end game. Um, you know, if, if, it's, if you really enjoy science, I think major in science and you will find applications um, to a career. Yeah. Do you have any questions for a current Gwinnett student, just what it's like or anything that's changed? Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, when I was at graduation and um, 
saw all the students there. There were, you know, many of the, there was a lot that seemed the same, right? Students seemed just have the same like kind of close friendships that I remember having at Gwynedd and the same kind of sense of excitement. Um, I feel like you all are much more sophisticated about things like college applications and there seem to be more, more classes, more like AP classes, more advanced classes, you know, more things like that. I guess I'm just curious um, specifically as a scientist, do you, like, I feel like at Gwinnett, I didn't really know like what scientists did, like what careers were out there. And I'm curious what Gwinnett does now to kind of prepare you for actually thinking about like what you should major in or what careers you should go into because I feel like I had none of that equated like it was it was great but we didn't really talk about like um post high school plans that that much right like we just applied to college but I felt like there wasn't much like guidance so I'm curious what you feel it's like now yeah so one thing I find really helpful is we have career day where we have like alumni who come back and they talk about their whole journey from leaving high school, going to college, and then getting to the career they're in now. And you look at like who all the speakers are and you can choose a career that you might be interested in. And you kind of just get a little, little spotlight into what it's like. And you get to see like, is this something I want to do? Is this something I don't want to do? And it helps you get just a little taste for what might be in your future. Um, And then there's also, they started senior year, you get a mentor who's in the field you're thinking of going into. And it's really helpful for figuring out what to do after college. And they, they help you with what to do for like what classes to take if you want to get a certain, like fulfill certain majors. And obviously there's advisors in college that'll help you with that. That's really great. Yeah. And you have also spoken at Career Day, which has been so wonderful for our students to hear from you. But yeah, we really try to make sure that people, you know, the students are thinking about not just the four years that they're here. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah, I would have loved to have a mentor um, who was a scientist because I knew no one who was a scientist when I was in high school. Like my parents did nothing like science. They thought it was completely weird and unrealistic that I wanted to do that. I had like no, no support. Um, it would have been really great to have that. That sounds awesome. That's so funny. You think of people usually wanting people to go into the sciences and thinking, don't go into music or something, you know, something like that. It's um, interesting. You had kind of an opposite uh, experience. Well, I think they just didn't think I could make money. Like they didn't understand like why anyone would pay someone to be an astronomer, you know? (laughs) Sounds very interesting though. Yeah. So is there any like final kind of pieces of advice or things that you wish, you know, our listeners, which are both alums, students, people in the community of Gwinnett um, that you, you know, would like to impart on them before we wrap up our interview? I don't know. I feel like I've given lots of advice, <laughs> probably, more, probably more than you want to hear even. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, this has been really fun. I guess I, I just say, I really, you know, I, I just turned 50, um, which really makes me reflect on my my life. <laughs> you know, like so much time has passed now since I graduated from Gwynedd. And I'm just so grateful to all of the 
faculty at Gwinnett. Um, and I'm just so grateful for all the friendships that I made there. You know, I still have very good friends that have been like an amazing support to me from my time at Gwinnett. I would just, well, I guess if people are listening to this podcast, you probably haven't lost touch with Gwinnett, <laughs> but I would encourage everyone to, to not lose touch. Um, and let's all just like kind of reach out to each other. Um, and I need to do more of this too. Um, you know, like I'm sure there are other alumna in other fields who I could learn from, you know, um, and some of the skills like I might be be lacking or some students who come to me and want to do English or history or things that I'm not an expert at. So I just really hope um, I'd love to see us just kind of stay in touch and kind of build up connections and for the current students not to lose those, those connections because you really will value them someday and um, miss them if you don't have them. Yeah, I already value them. Yeah. yeah, we're always encouraging the, the students to to build their network. Mm-hmm. You know, your network starts now and it just gets bigger and bigger as you go yeah. forward. Yeah, it's so important. And I don't think I realized that when I was in high school, like how to do that mindfully and how helpful it would be to me later, you know. Well, thank you so much, Mara, for for speaking with us and uh, teaching us about your amazing uh, research. I I feel like my brain can't even wrap itself around, um, you know, all that you do. But um, you're doing a fantastic job of not only, you know, teaching students, but encouraging diversity in the sciences and helping women. Um, so we really, you know, are so inspired by you and your work and appreciate you not only coming on the podcast, but also speaking at commencement this year. Um, I loved the the commencement speech um, and was really left inspired and excited, even though I'm not personally even a graduate this year. So <laughs> thank you very much. Well, thank you for those kind words. It's really great to speak to you. And it's so fun to get to know you a little bit. And um, thanks so much for giving me the opportunity. And hopefully I'll see you at some point um, in person, maybe at a future career day or something. That'd be fun. Mm -hmm.